Greetings and welcome to another episode of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Reardon, your host. I'm coming to you from Clayton Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. And with me as always is Marianne Steiner. Hi, Marianne. Good morning, Brian. And as we uh, were the last couple of episodes, we are social distancing. Uh, we've got one guest here in studio and another one on phone that we'll introduce in just a moment. And the topic for this episode will be hospital chaplains and COVID-19. And um, obviously the last couple of episodes, Marianne, we had, we, we looked at different aspects of the pandemic and we're going to do so again for this episode as we also, you know, reference back to the current issue of health progress. The summer issue has a couple of articles uh, on the role of chaplains during this pandemic. Uh, one of the articles is chaplains minister amidst changes brought by pandemic. And then the other one, uh, who's our first guest that I'll introduce, uh, the author of The Role of Chaplains Post-Intensive Care Syndrome, is Chelsea Leicher. She's a staff chaplain with, with common spirit, dignity, uh, and she authored that. Hello, Chelsea. Thanks for joining us from California. Hi, thanks for having me. We also have in studio here Jane Levdansky. She's a chaplain with SSM Health. Welcome, Jane. Thank you both very much. Glad to have you, even though we have to see you across a pane of glass. It's great to have you with us. Thank you. So, Marianne, um, I know over the years with Health Progress, um, the role of chaplains is something that uh, we've, we've covered quite a bit. Um, but with this uh, current situation going on in the world, the, the role has changed a little bit. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I'm, gonna, I'm really glad that these uh, two chaplains are with us in, in this conversation today because the, um, the role of chaplains, the professional role of chaplains, has been a big topic in pastoral care for years. And interestingly enough, on the other end of the spectrum, I think some of the most poignant stories to come through during the pandemic have had to do with what chaplains are dealing with um, in terms of the patients they can or can't get close to and the families they can or can't get close to, and even the staff that they um, tend to care for. So I think my first question, I guess, is to both of you, um, what's, what's COVID done to the role of hospital chaplains, and what new situations do you have to deal with that you probably weren't trained for or prepared for? Right. Well, there has never been a uh, playbook for pandemics. And uh, if we had one, it would certainly come in handy this time. Um, I, I look at that in terms of if there was such a thing as a playbook, we would have in there describing what chaplains do and how we do it. The what we do is to provide emotional and spiritual support to patients, their families, uh, visitors, administrators, staff, volunteers. That part of the playbook uh, prior to COVID and during COVID does not change. The part that does change is how we do our ministry. And in some ways that has um, caused us to step back and say, how can we be more creative, more innovative, uh, in providing that care in a different way, but in the best way that we can. So, Jane, I'm going to pursue that a little bit with you. I think that um, lacking the playbook that you wish you had, how are you coming up with ideas? Who do you have to bounce those off of? How do you work as a team to come up with those more innovative solutions? Because from 
from the little viewpoint that I have, mm-hmm. I don't see how you could fit another thing into your day. Right. So we certainly, as a department, uh, talk about how we can provide care still to our patients and to our families. Um, and also we, we dialogue with staff. With things having changed with COVID, how can we now still be of help to the staff um, through what they do in terms of connecting families with patients. So I think in this case, technology um, has been a big advantage for us. Mm-hmm. We've never had to rely on technology before like we do now. So um, every nursing unit uh, that works with COVID patients has iPads. Um, chaplains now have iPads too. So we have the opportunity to FaceTime with family and with patients so that they could at least set eyes on their loved one. So Chelsea, you come from an even larger system Mm -hmm. than uh, Jane. Jane's from SSM, which is uh, local offices in St. Louis, but uh, stretches through several states. You've been with Common Spirit for a while, and that's a recently merged system with, I bet, some different approaches to how chaplains work. Could you tell us how that has um, worked and how the various approaches to pastoral care in a system like that um, is working? I think it. Um, I can speak to my local hospital, um, which is Marion um, in Santa Maria, and how we've grown. And also, we have a department that covers several hospitals. And so it varies uh, a little bit per hospital, just based on the spirit of the hospital. And also, we have a mixture of some of our hospitals that we cover are Catholic, some are not. Mm-hmm. And so it's a mixture of that culture. Um, but I think it, what largely we have been doing and trying to grow in, and you know, I, I agree that it's not really the what, but the how we do our work. Um, but there has been a lot of growth as far as working with iPads, of working with families. I think our role has, I, th- I would say that what I find most helpful is we've had to switch to not just looking at our little uh, one department that we're working in or one section of the hospital that we're going for, but you can really, through COVID, feel the, the macro level. Mm-hmm. You can feel how the hospital is feeling, the tension in the hospital, the how we respond to each change, when it gets worse and when it gets better, noticing. So I think largely focusing on the staff and seeing how the mood is, how we can support them, how we can communicate the needs of the patients and staff as, as this uh, epidemic changes. I wonder, um, you know, a lot of what both of you do, uh, I guess pre-COVID, would actually, you know, have that close proximity, the healing touch, sort of that eye contact, the body language. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've had to adjust with um, wearing PPE, having masks on? I mean, it, it has to have changed the dynamic and how you interact, not only with patients, um, but I guess lack of having loved ones because of visitor restrictions. So it's got to be an entirely new dynamic in your interactions with patients and those that are, you know, loved ones and family members. It is. It's a it's a big dynamic change. Um, I think as chaplains, we naturally are physically at the bedside. Um, and I think oftentimes I'll speak for myself um, when I'm engaging somebody in prayer or if they just need a hand, I will extend my hands. 
I am not in a position to be able to do that right now during COVID. Um, and as a matter of fact, with SSM, uh, the hospital that I work with, we are not even permitted into the patient's room if they have COVID or if they are suspected to have COVID. So our ministry is either at the threshold or we can call them uh, on the hospital phone from our office, um, which, which for as chaplains, that's very difficult. Um, it, it is a very different dynamic than what we are used to. Um, certainly, if we are able to visit from the, do- from the threshold of the door, having a mask on and being probably 10 feet away from somebody makes it very difficult to read body language, to read facial expression, to even hear each other clearly. Um, so those are some of the barriers that we have to kind of contend with. Um, and I, I think, as Chelsea had mentioned, too, that on a daily basis, you never know when things can change. So it really requires us chaplains to be very flexible with that and adaptable. Chelsea, any perspective? I would say that, um, based on your question, the loss of human touch has been particularly devastating to the patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, people being, you know, touched for, for a procedure or or having blood drawn, but having that human contact that they're used to on a day-to-day from family, uh, people who would normally be coming into the hospital, a hug, a kiss, anything like that, you know, uh, that has been brought up to me by patients that it's been weeks and no one has touched me. Mm -hmm. And figuring out a way to be present, to be comforting to the best we can. Um, And then there's also been times where I've encouraged people to give themselves a self-massage, you know, to do things that are comforting and consoling in that sense. But I think thinking about how much we need human contact uh, is something worth thinking about. Before we started um, recording, Jane was talking about her 94-year-old mom. My 93-year-old mom's living with me right now. And mm-hmm. um, she doesn't know how to use Zoom. She doesn't even know how to text. She doesn't... Um, she, her doctor wanted her to do her physical, you know, f- from the computer in the kitchen. Um, I I just wonder when you are dealing with people who are compromised either because of age or dementia or lack of technology or just because they're undone given the seriousness of the conditions that they have, how, how, how can that virtual stuff bridge? I mean, I... It's just really hard. Someone who recovers completely may still not have all their faculties working when they're in the hospital. But then you also have all kinds of people in long-term care or other acute situations. I, I get that virtual care is really important and maybe the only alternative we have right now. But what are you doing for those populations that, that don't do virtual very well? It certainly is an added challenge. Um, Even prior to COVID, you would come to a patient who might just be hard of hearing. Um, And now you add to that a mask. Right. It makes it 10 times harder. Um, Or somebody who might be unresponsive. Um, That doesn't mean that we still can't do ministry. I can still stand at that doorway I can still be a gift of presence to them. 
because I believe on some level they know and they understand that somebody or something is there that I show up and I show up because I care. I know that I think in general our society is, a, is one that says um, in order to be productive you always have to do something and you have to show those things that you do. A lot of chaplaincy is it's difficult to measure what we do. So when family members do come to visit their loved ones and they feel like they're doing nothing, I'm just sitting here. I will tell them, don't underestimate the power of your presence here. In some way, your loved one knows that you are here. And so my hope is, is that in some way, that patient knows that I, too, am there for them. Mm-hmm. Chelsea, that, that really leads me into the article that you wrote for Health Progress, mm-hmm. which... Uh, which is coming out today, so it'll be exciting to see what kind of response we get to your article. But um, you talked about something that hasn't had a lot of research yet, which is called uh, post-intensive care syndrome, Mm -hmm. and it has to do with the consequences of being in, um, in intensive care for a long time, probably on a ventilator, Mm -hmm. being very close to death, and the kind of, uh, change in not not just the physical ability, but certainly the mental and the psychological and the spiritual dimensions mm-hmm. of how that person is uh, recovering with an entirely new sense of themselves and the danger they've been in. Mm-hmm. Would you talk about that a little bit and what you see um, what you see that chaplains can contribute that maybe some other people, might not be able to? Yeah, I think... Um, First of all, explain the syndrome. Okay, so so post-intensive care syndrome is kind of um, the response our bodies have to being intubated, to being on life support for a long period of time. And so often that's associated with the, the nurses will assess for ICU delirium where confusion can happen. And often, a lot of it is you're in and out of sleep. You don't quite know what's going on. Um, sometimes when when you're waking up, you know, you don't recognize, you don't remember being in the hospital. There's a lot of confusion uh, through the ICU process. And so as you start to recover, you wake up generally, and you may not know what has happened to you. And so although the nurses and the doctors are doing everything they can to save your life and mean well, your body has been through a trauma of sorts, being on life support, doing all those things. Maybe you had CPR, maybe you had something else, but you don't know. And so just that feeling of not knowing what has been done to you, uh, the way your body responds to that trauma, and then spiritually also I think where our role comes in is you're living with the reality that you could have died, you know, you were kept alive, and thinking about what do you do with this, you know, what do you do with that change, and that's where I think chaplains can really come in, mental health professionals can really come in and support through that process. And so there's a variety of ways patients could be assessed, but also it's just listening and helping them put together the pieces of what happened. 
So I, you know, my limited experience with chaplains has always been uh, that they are they are wonderful people in the hospital who help you transition from one thing to the other. Is there a role for chaplains now beyond beyond uh, the hospital or the long-term care setting? Are chaplains the kind of people who could maybe be following through um, as, you know, some people have spiritual direct directors. Mm-hmm. Do chaplains sometimes follow through with people long after they get home? I think, well, we do have one of our chaplains is actually assigned to our primary care clinics. And so he can be referred through those clinics. We also, um, our hospital has developed kind of an outpatient follow-up process that can also be implemented. It's We're not using it in that sense. Um I think there would be some technical areas in the process, but I think that's definitely an area where hospitals could consider growing. Um, but with with the primary care, the chaplain working there and growing in different areas, um, we certainly, uh, there is the ability to do that. I would also be interested in those who go to care facilities for continued rehab, um, thinking about if there's chaplain support there. I know we provide a chaplain to one of our skilled nursing facilities, but others may not have as much um, support in that area. But those are different places where there could be follow-up. And then there is continued growth to do outpatient uh, follow-up. Another area that uh, maybe chaplains are expanding, sort of their scope is among you know, working with staff, supporting staff within hospitals or long-term care facilities. Um, can you talk a little bit about maybe some things you've done in that area? Um, I've. What we noticed when COVID first hit us was that it was it wasn't hitting us, and then it came all of a sudden. It came very fast, and I was noticing, in particularly the strain on the ICU that got hit first. Um, so one thing we did, I sort of set up a chaplain office hours. Um, I offer tea to the staff, and when they can't leave their stations, I bring them tea, little things like that. But mostly I just round and check on all the nurses. I ask them how they're doing, how they're doing with the stress of all it, how the family's doing, um, but really just expanding and sensing the mood. Um being present to to talk, being that kind of third person who's not in the chain of command, who can just listen and be present with what they're going through, bearing in mind all the stresses we face, and also just how difficult it is to care for people who are on life support for such a long period of time. Jane, where do chaplains go when they need some support? (laughs) Um, We have each other. Um, I I will say that uh, there's a question that I ask myself every day. And that is, what did I do to take care of myself physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually? And some days I do really well in those areas, and other days not so well. Um, I'm a nature lover, so if you get me outside, I'm in heaven. Um, But I would encourage all of us, no matter what our ministry may be, um, to ask ourselves that question. Because the care that we provide to our patients is only as good as the care that we ourselves, um, as caregivers, 
are, are tending to our own needs. Um, so I, I think it's important for us as caregivers to address our, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, our physical well-being. Um, one of the things I think as a chaplain, um, and, and I've always felt that I'm in a privileged position as a chaplain, to see people in their worst of times, in the worst moments sometimes of their life, um, and to hear their very personal stories that are meaningful to them. And with families not being able to be present with their loved ones when they're in the hospital, um, just puts so much additional stress on the family, but on staff as well, because staff kind of have to fill in. And to be for that patient, the family, that under normal circumstances would be there. One of the things that we, um, after hearing uh, chaplains would make follow-up calls to family members after uh, their loved one has passed away of COVID, and you can just hear the pain and the agony and the fact that they have no closure. So one of the things that we've started is what we call the journal project, um, so that every patient who has been diagnosed with COVID will have a journal assigned to them. The journal is not for the patient to journal in, but for staff to journal in for the patient. So it might be a conversation um, that a staff person, be it a doctor, nurse, chaplain, um, environmental service worker, care partner, has had with that patient. And it could be something just as simple as, you're looking much better today, Mrs. Smith. Um, or you seem like you're struggling a little bit more today. Or thank you for sharing with me about your family. I hope I get the opportunity to meet them. And this journal would follow the patient from wherever they are in the hospital so that when this patient gets discharged, they will be given that journal so that if any point in time during their admission, they may have difficulty remembering, they can at least refer to that journal and hopefully will say, wow, I didn't realize I had such wonderful care. That's a great idea, and it seems like that's something that you could apply, you know, across the board, sure. not just with COVID patients. Do, do the staff get some benefit out of that, too, I would imagine? I think they do. Um, you know, our staff are very interactive with our patients, um, and I think that kind of makes St. Mary's pretty unique. Uh, we talk to our patients even when they're on ventilators because people can still hear you. They may not be able to respond, but they can hear um, so I think in some ways it's very cathartic and very healing for the staff as well to be able to convey that. Now, certainly if a patient does not survive COVID, that journal will be provided to their family so that for their family, it will be kind of a living memorial and tribute to their loved one, that it's something that they can physically touch and hold, knowing that my loved one's doctor or nurse wrote in here, took the time to express their care for my loved one. So Chelsea, you too talk about a journal project mm -hmm. that, um, it, well, that is specifically yeah. related to the post-intensive care syndrome, mm -hmm. but it has, I think, kind of a slightly different focus, right? Yes, it's, um, it's very similar. And I was looking over studies of what had helped with uh, post-intensive care syndrome. And one thing that kept coming up was uh, they would call it an ICU diary, but similar idea. And the nurses would write basically what happened 
to the patient that day. If they had a procedure, if you, they were doing better, if there was improvement each day as they are intubated. And they give that to the patient as they're extubated, as they start to recover. And the patient can review it and start to put together the days they have lost, those days that passed where they didn't know what happened to them. And the study had pretty much shown a significant reduction in depression and anxiety and the PTSD-like symptoms that followed their stay in the ICU. So it really was helping them to put together the memory of what had happened. Mm -hmm. So I I really like to save the hardest questions for last. Mm -hmm. And what I'd like to ask each of you is if you had the ear of your CEO or the the president of the health system or whatever, what would you tell that person is the most important thing going forward in terms of integrating care with chaplains um, as the professional care team in terms of the best care they can give? Um, I would say, I mean, there's a lot, (laughs) but I would say the thing that's really on my heart lately is the fact that the vast majority of our patients who are sick speak Spanish. And we have an interpretation system, but it, I wish, I wish, I wish that we had um, more in-person people who could just go in and talk to the patients um, beyond interpreting, um, but support. And so we do have a chaplain who's been coming in and doing calls, but it's just my heart aches for, for the needs, the emotional support that sometimes, you know, I can speak to them through an interpreter and I do my best to do it, but it's not the same thing. So that, I, I would never have thought of that. Thanks. Yeah, yeah it's, it's almost everyone. I would agree with Chelsea. Um, I know a lot of our conversation today has focused on patients and families. Um, I think the other thing that I would like to tell my CEO is, um, as a chaplain for 18 years, I have never spent so much time with staff uh, and needed time with staff than I have um, uh, these last several months. Um, I think one thing that the public doesn't understand is the sacrifices that our staff make. And I just don't mean professionally, but I mean personally as well. Um, and we've kind of talked a little bit uh, at our hospital about doing some sort of uh, tribute, if you will, or a healing mural of staff, um, that if they could just take some time to step back and reflect on the question of how has COVID affected you professionally and personally. And to have those responses put on a display in the hospital um, so that people who come in from the public, be they patients or visitors or, or whoever, uh, will be able to see uh, and read the many sacrifices that uh, staff endured for the care of others. Oh, that's great. I think that's a, a, a nice way to 
end our conversation. Um, some great insights. I really appreciate uh, both of you taking time out today to talk about your experiences. Uh, again, with us was Jane Levdansky. She's a chaplain with SSM Health here in St. Louis. And also on the phone, we had Chelsea Leicher. She was with Common Spirit Dignity and, again, was an author of The Role of Chaplains uh, Post-Intensive Care Syndrome. And that's in the current issue of Health Progress. Uh, Marianne, uh, any final thoughts? This was a really important conversation, and I think um, we were lucky to find two great participants. So thank you both for being with us and for giving us such thoughtful insight into um, what's going what's going on in, in the role of pastoral care. Yeah. Thank you both very much. Yeah. Appreciate it, Shane. Thank you. And that's another issue or another episode, I should say, of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. Uh, for Marianne Steiner, I'm Brian Rudin. Uh, we thank our friends at Clayton Studio for producing this episode. Uh, until next time, we'll talk to you.